0: I had better find the
1: script. Script uh, somewhere.
0: What, script there, line. What do you? What, it's not script. This podcast isn't. There's no script. This is entirely off the cuff. What are you oh, talking that, that, about? Yeah,
1: that's what I meant. I meant uh, find the off the cuff
0: stuff. <laughs> the, the off the cuff stuff that I've jotted down to guide me along. Yes,
1: in right. a completely off the cuff kind of way.
0: Outline is a perfectly fine word. Script, <laughs> ma- not quite the word that I uh, probably want to use.
1: Hello and welcome to the Interim Champion Boxing Podcast with Raskin and Mulvaney, along with my co-host, I am here in Mulvaney. And on this day before the Superb Owl Saturday edition of the podcast, we will conduct the first interview of the ICPP era, uh, welcoming our old friend, boxing photographer Ed Mulholland, with whom we have a lot to talk about, uh, both in terms of photographing fights and fighters, and a very different sort of fight he recently found himself in. Uh, We have a few matches to preview, most notably a title defense for Ashoky Foster, and perhaps some money punch bets will be placed. Um, We'll also cover all of this week's news. Eric will test me with the round of the fight game, and we'll break down the penultimate episode of True Detective Night Country, which dropped a couple of days early. But first, let's talk about Thursday's in-ring action. And I use the term with air quotes there from Las Vegas, where Eric... Your worst fears about what T.F.E.M.O. Lopez might do with his high-profile opportunity were realized.
0: Yeah, I, I said last week that Lopez didn't just need to win against Jermaine Ortiz. He needed to look good. He could give his career and the sport a huge boost on a Thursday night on ESPN in Vegas before a major sports weekend. In sharp contrast to what Shakur Stevenson did with the same type of opportunity in November. Now... This fight wasn't as boring as that fight, in my opinion, but it was highly disappointing. It drew boos, and the best Lopez could do was escape with a disputed decision. After a greatest showman-themed ring entrance, 140-pound champ Lopez wasn't much of a showman during the fight, in large part because Ortiz wouldn't cooperate, boxing and moving all night long out of the southpaw stance while Lopez struggled to track him down. At the end of 12 difficult-to-score rounds in which very few significant punches landed, Judges Tim Cheatham and David Sutherland had Lopez winning 115-113, and Steve Weisfeld, surprisingly, had the most off-base scorecard relative to public opinion, 117-111 for Lopez. So Teofimo retains his title by unanimous decision, interestingly by the exact same scores by which he took the title from Josh Taylor. Kieran, how did you score it? Do you find Weisfeld's card objectionable? And how upset or disappointed are you with either Lopez or Ortiz's performance?
1: So I scored at 115, 113 for Jermaine Ortiz. Um, It wasn't pretty, to put it mildly. It wasn't exciting. It wasn't a great way to grab people's attention if you're Jermaine Ortiz and announce that you deserve to be dining at the top table, uh, or otherwise make a big impression. But to Ortiz's credit, he did go in with a game plan, a game plan that clearly surprised Lopez. And while that game plan was to be a mover and a spoiler, he did stick to it. He knew how to frustrate Lopez, knew his weaknesses, knew to exploit them. That said, so low was his punch output and so low was his connect percentage that he can't complain about the fact that the decision went against him, or at least can't complain too much, if you ask me. As you said, a lot of the rounds, arguably most of them, were very close and difficult to score. And when neither man does much to separate himself, then a judge may just sneak around to the one guy who lands that clean punch or two, or who is trying to force the action. And, you know, that's probably what happened here. That said, while our deference to Steve Weisfeld is well-established, I do find it hard to see how Teofimo won nine rounds. But, yeah, look, very difficult rounds to score, very little action. Really hard to complain if you're on the wrong side of, of, of those scores. I, I think there are a couple of issues about this fight. First of all, it's worth underlining, and I feel like you and I have been the people who've been saying this longer than anyone else, being pushed to the limit by Jermaine Ortiz is not a disgrace. Um, we've said it before. He proved it against Lamachenko, and he showed it again here. Um, so if it's a close win over Jermaine Ortiz, that's that's okay. Mm-hmm. But the issue, the other issue, is win or lose, how you look and how you perform. <clears throat> you mentioned that Lopez won by the same scores as against Josh Taylor, but clearly, two very different quality of performances there. And the other sort of underlying issue here is the issue of Lopez's consistency, and namely the fact that he appears to have none of it at all. Um, But as Tim Bradley, I thought, aptly pointed out, I thought Tim's commentary was very good. There's a similarity between what happened on Thursday night and how Ortiz performed against Sandor Martin. But both were Southpaw movers who who kept circling backward and trying to goad Lopez forward and onto their counters. And as talented as Lopez is, and I've been high on his talent for ages it's becoming increasingly clear, I think, that he doesn't have the skills to match that talent. And most notably, he can't cut off the ring for shit. Um, he's not the only high-profile, highly regarded boxer to struggle against movers, like Canelo Alvarez traditionally has been one. Although even Canelo, you know, of late has been figuring out a way to start beating up the movers gradually and can be several rounds behind and then knock him out in the 11th round like he did against the likes of Billy Joe Saunders um, or Caleb Plan. Um, but there's also, I think, a factoring into that narrative is just this ongoing sense that there's this, even when he says he has a calm camp, there's a kind of tumult that surrounds Teofimo. Um, it's, it just feels like a camp that lurches from one fight to another, rather than one that has this kind of long term plan in place it doesn't feel like it's a smoothly running focused team and then there were all these other personal issues and when you've got your father as a key part of your team or the key part of your team and when your father honestly is teofimo lopez senior then you're not getting any kind of break between the personal and the professional and the personal's kind of weird and it bleeds into the professional i think but Teofimo Lopez needs the reintroduction of someone from outside who can instill some discipline and some instruction. Cause I think the kid would probably listen. I think he wants to do well. And, and, and I think he would like to learn. I'd love to see what a Joe Goosen or an Abel Sanchez could do. Um, but in isolation, this was a close, but not outrageous decision win against an underdog who I think oddsmakers and fans continue to underestimate in the context of his life and his career since beating Vasily Lomachenko, it now feels to me like Lopez is a tremendous talent who is not looking likely to achieve all that he at one point seemed destined to. But anyway, look, that's my take. What about you? How did you score it? And did you find yourself blaming one fighter or the other for how disappointing the fight was? And I not honestly anything else you want to say.
0: So uh, we did not have the same scorecard. I'll lead with that. Um, wow. Which I think, uh, yeah, I... I uh when you said 115-113 for a second I thought we did but uh but I went the other uh-huh. way I I had Ortiz getting out to a nice lead winning four of the first five rounds but I only gave him one more round the rest of the way I gave Lopez six of the last seven to allow him to retain his championship on my scorecard 115-113 but I I don't know that there were more than one or two rounds all fight that I felt it was clear cut who had won like probably 10 out of the 12 rounds, you could make a case for either guy. Here's the kind of fight it was when Mark Kriegel would come in with his scorecards. We had the same score through four, but had disagreed on two of the four rounds. And we still had the same score after eight, but had disagreed on two of those four rounds. Um, All of which is a long way of saying that uh, while Steve Weisfeld had the quote unquote worst final tally, I don't have a problem with his score in that You know, you you cannot tell me it was impossible to find nine rounds to give to Teo. There was one round, the fifth, that I gave to Ortiz and felt you pretty much had to give it to him. And and that was it. So 117, 111, not quite what I saw, but I think absolutely justifiable. Um, As for assigning blame, on the one hand, I blame Ortiz. Um, He fought the negative movement-based defensive-minded fight. He, He... Caused the fight to stink, I guess you would say. But that was his best route to victory. It was it was a largely successful strategy. Lopez, credit him for at least wanting to fight, wanting to entertain, but he really stunk at cutting off the ring, as you said. He didn't go to the body enough. He, he gets a lot of blame for failing to prevent Ortiz from doing what he wanted to do. Um, and by the way, d- doubling back a bit to my scoring, the difference between the first five rounds and the last seven is that in the first five, Ortiz was moving a lot but he was also countering and stopping mm, and popping mm. and and having moments of effective offense. After that he was moving and frustrating Lopez but he wasn't doing enough punching. Um he, he he really has himself to blame for the loss I think even if you can make a case that he deserved the win. The fight was was definitely winnable for him at least on two of the three scorecards if he had been just a little more offensive minded in the second half. He was just maybe a bit too content with what he was doing. Uh. Um, so, okay. I, uh, some other observations uh, that I have first, the fourth round was really interesting. I thought Lopez was having a decent round and then he stopped in a corner and invited Ortiz in to come fight with him. And Ortiz accepted the invitation and did some good work. And I thought Lopez cost himself the round by inviting Ortiz in and um, uh. A comment on Ortiz's game plan, it was a particular kind of stroke of genius to use a game plan that would frustrate Lopez because Teofimo is such a mentally and emotionally fragile fighter. And and, and I don't mean that to be insensitive to his mental health struggles, but mm. it's just a fact. He's emotional. You you saw him crying tears of relief when he got the decision. He's not like the stone cold poker faced assassin type. He, he gets emotional. He is fragile. And that made... Ortiz's game plan that much more effective, I thought. Um, And the last thing I want to say, I have to lob some criticism at Joe Tessitore. We know he's turned into a yeller, that that's part of his thing. I don't like it. But when he does it on a big knockout, at least I get where it's coming from. This fight, there was a head clash in the seventh round. Ortiz got a cut on his left eye. They dialed up the replay to see where the cut happened. And over the replay, Joe screamed, there's the clash right there at, at, at a volume and emotion that like typically you reserve for, you know, Juan Manuel Marquez icing Manny Pacquiao with one punch. <laughs> Utterly bizarre. I, I always want my sports broadcasters to resist the urge to yell, but especially when, when you're calling a replay of a minor head clash. Come on, dude, save it. Um, so, OK, that's that's my big rant on this fight. Uh, spinning it forward. Any quick thoughts on, on where you'd like to see Lopez or Ortiz go from here? Well, Lopez is still a name.
1: Uh, he still has a belt, which fighters like. And what we like is that he's still the lineal champ at 140 pounds. But uh, yeah, this was an opportunity miss, wasn't it? I, I think, the, I believe Bud Crawford was in the house and there was talk in the buildup. Um, you know, uh, uh, Lopez had been kind of calling Bud out and Bud had responded. I get the impression he probably would have enjoyed a matchup. Against the Teofimo Lopez, who would look good against Jermaine Ortiz. I made another statement on the back of the Josh Taylor fight. But what's the attraction for Bud in in facing him now? Um, That said, it's also impossible to go overboard here. There are still some great matchups uh, at 140 for Teofimo. Um, You know what I was thinking? Because it's, it's increasingly clear that Teofimo looks good against people who come to fight. How about El Matias? Um, mm. We're going to talk later about the fact that el has got a fight uh, right. coming up. But after that, I mean, he wouldn't have to go looking for him there. Gary Antoine Russell, another sure. guy. I mean, would just be a t- terrific uh, matchup. Um, Devin Haney is booked temporarily. But even so, I don't fancy Lopez's chances against Devin Haney one way or the other now. Um, but there are fights out there. There are fighters out there against whom Lopez can look good. And I still think he's an attraction. I still think he's a name. Um, Despite perhaps widely being perceived as the winner in some respects, Jermaine Ortiz may actually have come out of this, not just officially as the loser, but as the loser going forward. He didn't give anyone a compelling reason to watch him again. Um, He didn't give promoters a good reason to put him in a high profile position on a card. Bob Arum's just come out and slated him for the way that he performed. And right. if you're a potential opponent, why would you want to subject yourself to that? You know, what the one thing that boxers hate more than anything is to look dumb in the ring and to swing and miss. And now that's not always the way that Jermaine Ortiz fights. I don't remember him fighting like that. He, this was a very specific right. uh, a strategy that he had for this fight. But nonetheless, that's what's going to register in a lot of people's minds now. And again, I get it. Get why he tried to fight the way that he did. It made sense for the very specific purpose of what he was trying to do, but it's a risk and he fell short. And now I think he's going to have to go back to the back of the line a little bit. And um, and remind us of some of the other stuff that he's capable of doing in order to work his way back into title contention.
0: Yeah. Uh, uh, agreed. Um, the, the decision not going his way when it kind of could have gone either way just really swings his fortunes. More, even more dramatically than is... I mean, it's always the case. You're challenging for a lineal title. Uh, it's a big deal whether you get the win or not. But in his case, you're right. With the way he fought, it has even wider implications. Yeah.
1: But if either of these guys want uh, some kind of inspiration for of someone who can look really bad, be really hyped, look really bad, and then come back and look really good, they only have to look as far as the co um, Lightweight prospect, Keyshawn Davis, improves to 10-0 with a dominant sixth-round stoppage win over veteran Jose Pedraza, referee Thomas Taylor, jumping in at 109 of the round after Davis knocked a bleeding Pedraza into a corner and was landing follow-up punches. Eric, what did you think of Davis's performance here? Is he right back where he was in your eyes before his no contest against the Here Albright? Or was Pedraza too
0: faded and slash or weight drained for this to count for too much? So I... I thought the weight drain talk was probably overstated. It was it was very speculative. I, I didn't love the asterisk that the broadcast team was putting on Davis's win with that. But faded, yeah, uh, not washed, but, but plenty faded. Pedraza's been pointing in this direction for a while. Look, this is a tried and true boxing tradition. The once excellent fighter who is now just a good fighter, uh, getting absolutely wrecked by a rising young star who you know, in his prime, the older fighter could have been competitive with the guy, but but not now. Um, P- Pedraza was never going to be competitive in this fight on Thursday, which was why I used Keyshawn to win at like minus 800 odds as, as that parlay leg Uh, too bad. The other part of the parlay didn't hit and all my other bets lost. Uh, So on our money punch bankroll, I am falling behind. I'm down to $445, whereas you're uh, sitting relatively pretty at 480. But anyway, this was never going to be a competitive fight. Davis is a special boxer, despite the blip against Albright, who's way too fast and energetic and explosive for Pedraza Now that God helped him quit the weed, uh, you know, imagine what you could do, Kieran, if you would just let God free you of your marijuana addiction. But seriously, I'm terrible. (laughs) doesn't interest you, huh? Okay, well, (laughs) um, but no, I'm back to calling Davis the the best prospect in the sport, even if it didn't prove much to beat Pedraza at this point, it at least proved a little something that he so completely dominated him and stopped him and good stoppage by thomas taylor by the way i think he was correct to sense that pedraza had no fight left in him at that moment so anyway yeah uncriticable win for davis in my eyes he looked as good as you could possibly hope for him to look
1: yeah and i also thought this was excellent threading the needle just perfectly matchmaking uh mm. as well it was uh, Realizing that Davis didn't just need to win, but he needed a kind of a statement win. Take a guy who's always been exciting and dangerous, who's going to come forward, perhaps play into Davis's strengths, allow Davis to kind of stand there and do power counters, uh, taking advantage of his hand speed. Um, you run a little bit of a risk if Pedraza isn't that, isn't as faded as you think he is. Maybe it's he Davis has a, another tough fight. But he's faded just enough for Davis to look really good and get himself right back into position. That's the kind of balancing act that you're playing when you're trying to to move a prospect along. And top rank's always been really good at it. And I think they nailed it. Yeah. All right, it has been a while since we've had a guest to join us, and the first interview of our interim iteration of the podcast is a good friend of us both. Uh, he and I were road partners with HBO, covering many fights and visiting multiple training camps together. Since then, he's been the photographer for Matchroom USA, but he's also had to engage in his own battles of late, from which we are pleased to say that he has emerged victorious.
0: Ed Holland,
1: welcome to the podcast.
0: Thanks, guys. Great to have you on, Ed. Great to talk to you again. Um, I want to start with a a simple clarification. Are you or are you not a co-winner of the BWAA's Courage Award? Because the the BWAA press release said Lisa McClellan won, but it also said she finished in a first-place tie with you. So did she win in some sort of tiebreaker, or are you both being recognized and the press release was just confusingly worded?
2: Yeah, really strange. And I don't know how much I'm supposed to say about this or not, so I'll probably just say everything because why not <laughs> why I, not um <laughs>
0: nobody's listening so, so, so you <laughs> here's so here's what
2: happened i yes we are indeed co-winners okay um
0: congratulations
2: thank you and what had happened was they, they tabulated the votes and i guess apparently i was uh one vote short like she had one more vote okay However, when they counted the votes, they then realized that someone had not cast their their vote on who's on the board
0: hmm. and
2: had not put in any of their votes. So they were like, hey, you you know, you're counting these votes with us and you never put in any of your votes. So that person had to then go in and put their votes, which then set my category, I guess, into a tie, which is very strange. But um, yeah, that's how it happened.
0: Okay.
2: Um, so then the press release went out and I hadn't seen it. And then I got a phone call from Joe Sanaliquito and he's like, hey, uh, so yeah, I kind of screwed this one up. And um, <laughs> he's like, you know, we put out this press release, but we hadn't actually counted all the votes and it didn't really change anything except for your category. So the press release is going to look really kind of funky with like this little addendum thing on the bottom of it. I'm, I'm not sure why they just didn't rewrite the whole paragraph, but right. they tacked that in at the end. And um, yeah, it was kind of weird. So... <laughs> okay um, it is what it is
0: so I, you will is. be collecting an, an award though because so I, uh, be I wasn't collecting.
2: sure yeah so i will be collecting an award it, it was just strange and you know it's i don't know the whole thing's kind of strange it's like i mean i get it but it, it's I, I just i don't know it's weird like i'm getting an award for i mean i i find it my wife's like like liz is so much better about it. she's like no you 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 went through um i guess frame lack of better description hell and and you defeated this and, you know, you were great throughout it and, you know, were super positive and everything else. But at the same time, I'm like, wow, I'm getting an award because I got cancer. Um, and I'm like, you know, so it's kind of weird, but
1: uh, it's appreciated. As you ended, the, your Courage Award was not for spending several years in a car on the road for HBO with me, although you should perhaps have won it for that. <laughs> now, that would, but...
2: now that I would feel OK about.
1: <laughs> right. I might mean, be more
2: appropriate.
1: Right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but as you said, you, you have dealt with cancer. Can you tell us, first of all, what kind of cancer was it? How is it detected? Just just tell us a little bit of the background.
2: It was throat cancer, um, which is sort of ironic because I have never smoked a cigarette in my life. And um, while well, I do drink, I don't drink very often. And so. Uh, it, it was weird. I was having like tremendous ear pain and uh, went to my doctor and uh, she did an exam. And she's like, yeah, there's absolutely nothing wrong with your ears. You're fine. Um, I'm going to give you an antibiotic just in case um, there's an infection, but I'm not really seeing anything. And uh, then like, you know, a couple of weeks later, my ears still bother me. But I ended up um, I was sparring, interesting enough, and I tore my bicep. And I had a surgery for that and they put me on Oxy and um, which I used to sit there and go like, man, how do people get addicted to like uh, uh, Oxy? Like it's a pill, like it's medicine and man, you feel good on that stuff. And I felt nothing. Your pain went away. And like, this is great. And then, you know, healing from the bicep, I'm off the medication and all of a sudden my ears killing me again. And I go back to the doctor and again, she looks and she's like, I don't see anything, but I'm going to recommend you go see an ENT um ear ear nose and throat specialist and uh before i even got there i woke up in the middle of the night one night and um thought i was having a bloody nose went to the bathroom and um there was no blood whatsoever and i'm like god i just it felt like there was just so much liquid or whatever like and um i just cleared my throat and i spit into the sink and um i just spit blood everywhere mm. like it not even it just went everywhere which is just really scary. And um, so I I yelled to Liz and she came running in and she looked at the bathroom and it was like, you know, what'd you kill? Kind of thing. Like it was Ah. bad. And uh so we ran to the hospital real quick and uh it was like full moon, couldn't get in. It was like, you know, massive full moon COVID night. And it was like three hour wait kind of deal. And so all right, let's just go home. Nothing's gonna happen tonight. And let me just um you know let me just call the auntie in the morning called dnt they got me right in and um you know he checks my ears he checks my throat they do um an endoscopy where they put a camera up like your nostril and then down into your throat and they can see what's going on and he's like yeah your ears are clear your your throats clear except um you have a rather large mass tumor on the back side of your tongue in your throat and I don't really be the one, I, I don't want to be the one to tell you this, but it's probably cancer. So, mm-hmm. and he's like, your lymph nodes are very swollen. Again, don't want to be the one to tell you this, but it has probably spread. So, um, crazy, man. Like everything changes like real fast. And, uh, so I, I leave it, call my wife. Um, she's like, all right, I'm going to come home. She comes home. Um, i have gotten there first. I called the kids down. I told the kids what's going on. Um, Kylie, you know, gets upset and, um, she's like, not a, a hugger, a toucher, a feeler, like that kind of deal. And she's runs over and just gives me like the tightest hug ever. Meanwhile, Cole, on the other hand, is like, Hey dad, good news. Like if you have to do radiation, you have to lose your hair. So, yeah. <laughs> like, you know, like he's me basically. So right. it's like, okay, you know, cool, whatever. Um, so then you just, you kind of like, all right, what do we do? And, um, so the, the oncologist, the ENT in New Jersey happened to be really good friends with someone over at Mount Sinai and Mount Sinai is one of the premier centers for this. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was lucky that it was local. Um, and he's like, I will get you in with this guy. And, uh, the, the strange thing is like, they, they make, so they get me in they make an appointment and it's like a month and a half away. And I'm sitting there going, man, like, this is like, like, I I don't want to wait a month and a half. Like, Uh you know? So I'm talking to my brother and and I'm on the phone with Scott and he's like, um, who's the guy's name? And I give him the name and he's like, oh no, it's not the guy. He's like, uh, yeah, let me send a message. And, and he gets back to me and he's like, Yeah, you're gonna get a call. Like, um, he's like, I spoke to someone over there, and uh he's like, if if he can't get you in, the head of the department will actually take you and they'll get you right in. He's the guy he's written all these papers, but the guy you're going to see. Is, a, is this guy dr eric Gendon, he was wonderful he's like he's like his right-hand man they do all their papers together and these two are like the leaders in the field and everything else and i'm looking i'm like how the heck did you do this he's like oh they have a whole foundation built around head neck and throat cancer he's like i designed a website and everything
1: and oh my like, gosh! oh
2: okay hitting me like really like this is like so i end up getting right into next week um they fit me in and they did um because it, they thought it had spread into my lymph nodes and everything in my throat. They took these needles and they have to put needles into your throat and draw cells from the lymph nodes. Yeah. It's not pleasant. Um, and, uh, but they tested it all. And, and he comes back and he's like, good news, bad news. And I'm like, what do you got? He's like, good news is there's no spread in your lymph nodes. He goes, bad news is we still don't know what type of cancer it is. And, uh, so you're going to have to have a biopsy. So I had to have a surgical biopsy. So, um, we happen to have a fight week, a match room fight week in the city. And, um, match room was nice enough to book me a hotel, um, on the Sunday night, because my meeting, my meeting at the hospital was on Monday. Um, so they're like, Hey, we're just going to bring you in earlier. And that way you, you don't have to drive in and try and find parking and all this other stuff. So they were great. So I, 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 we came in, we spent the night in the city just took an uber up to Mount Sinai I I had the surgery um they cut a piece of the tumor out of my throat they couldn't they couldn't operate on the tumor because it was near my voice box hmm. and on the the tongue goes back into your throat and it was on the back of my tongue so they would have had to cut out a large portion of my tongue and potentially part of voice box and I would have had to relearn how to eat and relearn how to speak and all this other stuff so they could only attack it with radiation and chemotherapy so they cut out a small piece of it to test it, to see what type of cancer it was. And they sent me on my way a couple hours later and it was really sore and everything else, but I went right in the fight week the next day and worked the whole fight week. Um, Cause I just wanted to be as normal as possible. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah. So then they told me to eat as much as I could and try and get as fat as I possibly could. Um, because it was good. He said, when I met with them after the biopsy, when they got the results, um, it turns out it was cancer related to HPV, which is a virus mm-hmm. that apparently like 85% of people our age have because they didn't have vaccines for it. Now they have vaccines. So like my kids have been vaccinated against it. Um, and it is, it causes throat cancer in men who are relatively young and it's the only known cause of cervical cancer in women. Mm. So um it's it's a um I di- we didn't necessarily catch it early, but I guess early enough. Um, so it was stage three, um, because it was quite a large tumor, and that's what was causing problems swallowing and the ear pain. And we ended up um, doing everyday radiation for seven straight weeks. Mm. Um, I had to go to Valley Hospital and get under the radiation thing and they strap you to this table and you can't move a muscle and you got this like mask thing that pinned your head down and um yeah it's just awful awful yeah. and um but the nurses were amazing and um i'll tell you what after seven weeks of it like you finish that last session and like i'd come in and they'd be like what do you want to listen to today and i'd be like "Ah, crack out 90s alternative and they'd blast it for me and like you know we ended <laughs> like you know, the last thing I, I, they had me doing like, so Hey, you got three songs or so, what do you want to do? And I'm like, all right, I need the Smiths. There's a the light that never goes out. And I want Linkin park waiting for the end. And I want, and they, <laughs> they, they were awesome. And like, um and then once a week I had to do chemo as well, which was an all day thing. Mm. Um, and uh, so I would, I would do radiation. I go straight upstairs and they would hydrate me and um I'd go through chemo. And um that was an all day thing. and, it, it, it's pretty debilitating. Um, You're physically beat up about three days in radiation. I couldn't taste any food Mm. Uh, about three weeks in, it starts to just hurt to eat. Um, And I went from, they had me eat like crazy. And I was at a very muscular 212 pounds when I started. And I was at a very muscle limited 164 pounds, seven weeks later.
0: Wow. Which was crazy.
2: Yeah, wow. It's pretty crazy. So and then I had to go for hydration um, once or twice a week, too. And because I, I wasn't even drinking enough. Um, but, you know, whatever. I mean, I got up every day and I went to the gym and tried mm-hmm. to work out. And I was training clients as well and tried to keep it as normal as possible. But I couldn't work. So like about three weeks in, I stopped covering NHL games. Um, I couldn't do any matchroom stuff because I wasn't allowed to leave. I couldn't travel so i right. couldn't get out to go anywhere because i had to be here for every day for radiation um so yeah it changed and you know i had a goal uh, and that was to be back for the canelo fight when he fought john Ryder. Mm-hmm. and uh, i knew my treatments would end about a week and a half before that and uh so yeah that's my goal i'm getting there and i finished my treatments and match shut me down and they were like you're not going mm. and um yeah, thank god i mean they they looked at me in that respect because i would have been miserable and I would have never made it i was editing i i stayed home and and edited for melina while i was she covered it and, and and i stayed home and i was like on the couch like photos would come in and i'm editing getting them out to the media and you know liz is sitting next to me like wake up oh yeah man. <laughs> 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 I, was, I was just exhausted it was just right. it was real yeah. but, but they tell me i'm good so
1: yeah. yeah. So
0: so uh, about that, the, the seven weeks of, of treatment ends, how long was it before they sort of retest you and give you this clean bill of health? And just and just how clean is your bill of it? Like when they say you're yeah, good, so, is it like gone, gone or?
2: Yeah. So what, what happens is like it, it was kind of weird, like when when you finish, you go, um you basically like it's like, hey, your treatments are done. And it's like this. Yeah, hey, let's celebrate. And but you don't really know. If it worked or not, because all I could get was like when they do the radiation, they're taking images, but the images aren't like PET scan quality. So you can't you can tell it's shrinking, but you can't tell how much or or if it's gone. Um, So about I want to say it was about six weeks. After, let me try and think we we finished at the end of April, so it's probably about seven weeks after I went for a PET scan. And then a week after that, I got the results and it still, it showed like, um, like some colors, which generally triggers that there's still something there, but it was so little that their thoughts are generally like when treatment ends, it's not like it's killed the tumor, the radiation hammers, the tumor, and then it dies slowly. Mm. So at that point they were like, everything looks great. Um, it looks like we're going to get it all. Um, and then they do a blood test called a Nevaris blood test. And what this does is tests for tumors in your bloodstream. So, and I have no idea what these numbers mean, but I just know that like when I started, if you have anything other than a zero um, if, or, or negative numbers, but generally like a one or a two shows that there's potentially, there's no tumors in your blood, but there's a risk of reoccurrence. In a certain amount of years or whatever, anything above that means there's tumors sh- showing up in your bloodstream. When I started treatment, my initial Navirus blood test was 4,718. <laughs> wow. Yeah, which I, I guess that means there's tumors all over my bloodstream. Um, and then when I finished, that came back at zero. Wow. So um, I've had two of those or three of those since we ended. Um, they've all come back at zero. Um, my PET scan came back clear. And I've had two endoscopies, which have both come back clear. And I have a third one scheduled for March 4th, I think is my, my third one. Um, but I'm in the doctor's office about every two months and they're just, you know, constantly it's either meeting with the radiation people, meeting with my oncologist for endoscopies, um, having someone come to my house to draw blood. And then, uh, I guess in April I'll have a full PET scan again, um, just to make sure nothing's come back or something else hasn't occurred or anything like that. So, um, but that'll go on for about two years. Okay. And, and at the end of two years, they will declare me cured. Right. Um, okay. that means that my prognosis would be, uh, very, very good that it, yeah. that it won't come back. Um, but you know, once you have some kind of cancer, your risk of recurrence is higher than the average person. So I'll just have to continue getting, you know, checks like this and it just becomes part of the normal, you know, routine of what you do. Right. Is what it is.
0: You yeah, know, you just get used to it. Right. Well, you may you you may be downplaying it a, a little bit when you said you you know, why do I deserve an award? I all I did was get cancer or whatever, but <laughs> it sounds like it was an ordeal. And so uh just you know, don't uh don't decline the award, Ed. I think it's it's uh, no, it's well earned what you went through.
2: I, I'll, I'll be honest with you, though. It's like, um, as bad as it was on me, it was ba- really bad physically. Mm-hmm. Um, we're about this today, actually. Um, it was like, because we're, we were watching uh, we were watching something, and they were talking about uh, Toby Keith, who just passed away from right. stomach cancer, uh-huh. And, like, you know, he was doing an interview last year and was like, yeah, I'm hoping to get back on tour. And, you know, as long as everything is, you know, stays completely clean and hunky-dory, we're going to be good. And here we are, like, you know, a year later, and, and he's, it's come back was really bad and he passed away. And you, so you always have that mm-hmm. in the back of your head. Um, That's more, that's the harder part. Like physically I've recovered. Right. I put my work back on. I've been in the gym like crazy. Um, You know, I got all my muscle back. I feel great physically, but in the back of your head, every time it's like, like, I still have trouble swallowing. I still have trouble eating Um, things like that. Food gets caught. It's frustrating. Um, I hate going out to eat with people because, uh-huh. you know, nine times out of 10 I'm going to spit something at you and I most of the time I don't mean to right. and <laughs> most but, of the time most of the time it's but you know so it's like y- you still have that but it's it's more of that causes more of an anxiety side of things than anything else but what it was hard i mean like it was weird when the news got out the news got out way before i wanted to tell anyone mm. and the only people i told were people in matchroom and um so someone slipped and let it out. And then Joe Santa Likido came, run, comes running over to me. Now I found out a week and a half before that I had been diagnosed. And he's like, I want to write an article about it. And I'm like, dude, I, I haven't even processed this yet. Like, like let's just slow, let's hit the brakes. Like, mm-hmm. you know, if you still want to talk to me later on, we can revisit, but you you gotta. So then he called me up like two months later and he's like, Hey, I still want to write something about this and what you're going through. Are you cool with it? And I'm like, I, ah, you know, I don't know. I'm like, but he wanted to write it. It, it was, it was actually really good and it was great. And, and it, it kind of helped a lot. And he wanted to write it, not so much about necessarily what I was necessarily going through all the time, but what my family was going through. Hmm. And um, it, it was pretty cool. And I think it it helped. I think it helped Liz. Um. Because I'll give her more credit than anything. And and honestly, she should be getting she should be up there getting this with me. Um, She not once ever did she ever cry in front of me. Like Mm. never. Like she was just don't worry about this. We got this. We're going to get through this. You know, whatever we have to do, we're going to fight it. We're going to be great. And I'm like, man, she's just. Amazing. And then one day I get out of bed and um, I got up and um, the house is quiet. And I'm like, I get out of bed. and walk around the corner. And I'm like, I-, I hear something, right? I open the basement door. I creep down the stairs and there she is. She's standing over by like the washer and dryer and all. She's doing laundry. and She's just crying. Mm. crying. She would go downstairs when she just got overwhelmed and never let me see it. Mm never once she never once cried in front of me she was just yeah she was great like i mean with me all the time and my and like you know my son again my son's like me so he deflects through humor and things like that and great and that's you know you need that and you know if liz had to work and couldn't take me to chemo my daughter would be like i'll go and she'd sit in this little freaking cubicle with me and you know you need anything what do you want let's order some lunch whatever she'd run out bring it back and yeah, the support, the support was great um, from everyone, even like boxing community was was phenomenal. The messages from fighters and video clips they sent me and things mm-hmm. like that it was awesome. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, middle of the Ryder Canelo media day and my phone goes off. I'm sitting here. I can't go. And I'm like, oh, mm-hmm. and, you know, and I look and it's a freaking like 10 second video from Canelo. Hmm. You know, hey, just heard can't make it blah, blah, blah. I'll see you. In, I'll see you in May, you know, like whatever. But just little stuff like that. Just kind of, you know, makes you feel pretty good. Yeah, that's great. Was yeah, great. Yeah, it was, it was, yeah. it was all right.
1: Yeah, I would think, you know, you kind of touched on it. First of all, I can just, if I know Liz, I can't think of anything she would rather do than get up on stage in front of everybody at the BWAA meeting and accept that <laughs> with you. She, right. She'd love that. She'd love right. that. That is right in her real house. Right, even, exactly. Like, I think as
2: much as I think the interview with Joe helped her, like because she got to verbalize it, she's like. <laughs> I don't want to be part of this, right? No, no, no. You, you do the interview. I'm like, no, but that's not the premise of the story. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can you sit and listen? Like, we'll Start together. And then I left and she was on the phone with Joe for like an hour. Like, I mean, I'm sure you've spoken on the phone with Joe. So, yeah. But yeah, yeah, yeah no, that, that, that deserves go? the courage. Is that what you
0: said, Kieran? That deserves the courage award. Yeah. Yeah. yeah exactly. I was thinking yeah. the exact same thing. Yeah. I mean,
2: I I agree. I mean, she's probably thinking at the end of it, man. I wish it was me that had the cancer. That wasn't, yeah. yeah, But yeah, she's she hates that stuff. Like, I mean, yeah. I mean, you know her. She doesn't want to talk in front of anyone or anything else. But yeah, I'll I'll make sure to embarrass her somehow. There.
1: (laughs) There there, there you go. And yeah, the final thing I wanted to ask before before we move on to happier stuff is, you sort of touched on the psychological aspects and I imagine when you're going through it obviously you're just tired and you're beat and you're trying to beat it physically. But I mean, I know you You spent years working on your lifting and really trying to, you know, that's been really, really important for you. Both, you know, for, for you physically and psychologically, and to see your body kind of wasting away like that, I would think, and not being able to do any of that, must have just been really, really tough psychologically as well. And 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 how soon were you able to get back to it? And do you feel you said you're you're kind of back again? Do you feel physically back where you were?
2: Um, I do. Uh, like muscle wise, size wise, I actually um, I hit a a four hundred pounds. Uh, barbell squat the other day Which was the first time I've hit that since Before treatment um, So physically I feel strong um, I've put my muscle back on I've gotten my weight back up um, I'm I'm in the 194 range Which I was uh, I think I was at 201 before this started And I ate myself up to 212 Before treatment started and it came way down um, But You know I'm Feeding really well this week And then I I start my cut again. Um, I've had a couple of people at the gym trying to talk me into a bodybuilding show because I've gotten myself big enough now. Um, So I may start a cut towards that. And that might just be something to kind of do for um, more psychological than anything else Mm -hmm. and Um, how how much I could push my body now. Um, But yeah, it was um, it was tough. It's weird, though. It's it's um, this, I mean, people are going to hear this and be like, that's just, that's just sick and cruel, but it, I you had, to had a little fun with it, right? Like, you know, I I'm going through this horrible thing. And I was like, I have my, um, certifications in personal training and strength and conditioning and nutrition and whatnot. So I, I work in sports, sports are at night. So when I'm not traveling, I, um, I was training clients like personal training clients. And, um, so I'd go to the gym every day and uh, train some clients, but there's these group classes going on. And you I'll tell you what, going through this ta- taught me a lot, but it was like, I, I would see anyone like around my age, women around my age. So if you're anyone from in the forties to forties and above, they look at fitness by like how skinny you are. Like, whereas girls today now, like you're 20 somethings into your thirties, they want to be fit. They mm. lift weights. They put on muscle. They're they're lean. They they're fit and athletic, and that's their measure of being healthy. Um. So I started losing weight like crazy. But like when I had a lot of muscle and was like you know big, they'd look at me and be oh you have a lot of muscle and I was like, women like in our age were kind of like oh like whatever it's they want thin like thin equates healthy, and um so I started losing weight like crazy and now all of a sudden I'm going from two twelve and I'm down to like one sixty eight one sixty nine and if you looked at me in clothes, you'd be like, wow, he's, he's like really thin. Right? And they'd be like, what are you doing? Oh my God. And, and you, you, you look so thin and oh, you look great. And and I looked great. In <laughs> I took my shirt off. There's like, I have no muscle and the skin's hanging. And like, cause I lost my muscle and it was gross. It was like, I felt so unhealthy. And, um, but they'd ask me like, what are you doing? What are you doing? And I'd be like, uh, do you really want to know the secret? And they're like, yeah. And I'm like, oh, chemo and radiation. And they'd be like, what? what? And their faces would go pale. And they're like, are you kidding? And I'm like, there's one joke about cancer. And they'd be like, oh, my God. Uh, and I'm like, it's fine. I'm, I'm I'm just I'm having a little fun. But, yes, that's what's happening. And this is why I learned a lot about nutrition and why, like, these people that eat so little to lose so much weight fast, you're not healthy. You just you lose all your muscle. Yeah. I was eating too much muscle. It was I was muscle wasting. It was just eating away. at me, and, and that caused a lot. Like you said, like, I was so into that. They start to get, oh, my God. Oh, my God. Um but you also find that like you eat because of emotion. Like I mm-hmm. couldn't I couldn't taste food. So food gave me no pleasure. So like whereas food gives you pleasure, something bad happens, you feel crappy, oh, you have some comfort food. And hey, you celebrate and you have some food and some beer and things like that. And like, but when you can't taste anything, you're like, I don't know, why do I want it? So you only ate when you like, you know. So yeah, I've learned that I eat out of I I learned that I eat out of emotion a lot, and I, it's become much easier to just kind of eat cleaner and you know healthy. Which yeah. yeah,
0: you look Here's you a, look good. A, you look like uh, yeah you look like your old self, and so
2: uh, yeah, I feel normal. I feel normal. That's, that's the easiest way to sum it up is I feel normal. That's great. All, All right, right, well, the well, drink constantly. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I have tremendous dry mouth. Keep okay. <laughs> oh, okay. interesting. That's from the, it's from the radiation. Um, hmm. it, my uh, salivary glands, huh. so I can't produce as much saliva as needed. So I just constantly drink water around the clock, but they say that'll go away in the next
0: year and a half or so well and it but it's and it's good to be drinking lots of water anyway that's uh, doctor okay. recommended regardless of your situation so um, so let's let, let's talk just a, a, a couple of uh, boxing and uh, business type topics here and uh, you mentioned uh, you know canelo sending you that that great message uh, and and just the community reaching out to you and all that I'm curious ed in, in all your years of uh, of doing this if you could name one boxer that you've particularly gotten to know well at, at some point in your career and, and maybe developed sort of a soft spot for, is there, is there someone who stands out?
2: Uh, I'm going to see if Kieran can answer this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I know
0: who it is. Can
2: you answer this?
1: Oh, it might be somebody I have a bit of a crush on too. Oh, Person you... named Miguel. <laughs> yeah, that that's, that's the one. Um,
0: you're, you're part of the Kodo Love Society too, huh? Oh,
2: man, I love Miguel.
0: Um, <laughs>
2: Yeah, I actually he wasn't I saw Brian Perez two weeks ago and I was like, hey, where's Miguel? And he wasn't he wasn't there for that show. Um, but I, I saw him God, where did they say I saw him in San Antonio just before I got sick. Um man, I loved Miguel Cotto. So there's there's a couple. There's um Arturo Gaddy. And mm-hmm. if you could look around my basement, I like in front of me, really, I have three Gaddy photos two of which are autographed by both him and Mickey. Um, I have Artur Gaddy's hand wraps on the wall down there from his last fight that he gave me hmm. um, after that. Um, yeah, I just, I, I have so much Gaddy stuff. Magazine covers the Gaddy behind me. And um, so he's won uh, Miguel Cotto um, because I got to spend time with him. Um, so like it, it was, you don't get to spend a lot of time with these guys. Um, you're there, you shoot the way and you shoot the fight, you go home, but occasionally with HBO, you got to spend time with guys. Um, we got sent, Kerry and I got sent into training camps, um, triple G Canelo. Gaddy was a New Jersey guy. So I saw him for fight weeks and training sessions and things like that. And you, you get to know certain guys and it's, it's tough because, you know, when you, develop a relationship with a fighter it it becomes harder to it almost becomes a little harder to do your job like because you have uh, like an affinity towards that fighter you you when he's getting hit you're like oh shit you you start to fight a little bit as a as a fan Um, so you try try not to do it but it's weird because it's become different now with HBO I was distanced with matchroom covering a lot of matchroom fights I'm not distanced um you're with the fighter the entire week Mm. you're taking them out on site somewhere, doing a first face off. You're doing a media day. I'm shooting portrait sessions with them. So, you know, we're going over the portraits and doing things like that. And they're constantly texting you, Hey, can I get photos? Hey, can I get my photos? And so you, whereas I maybe had one fighter's phone number in all my years at HBO, I have a phone full of Mm. phone numbers now because you're sending them images all the time. And um, so you develop more relationships um, which I love because the more you develop relationships with fighters, like, like, I mean, there's a difference between developing a relationship fighter and being a friend with a fighter. Right. Um, I have a lot of relationships with fighters. I wouldn't say those like Canelo, for instance, I have a great relationship with. If he were to walk in a room that I was in, he would see me, he would recognize me, he'd come over to me, he'd be Ed, Hey, how you doing? He'd say hi. Boom. Am I his friend? No, we're not going out golfing together. <laughs>
0: right. They know him.
2: we've developed a relationship based on the work I've done for him. And he knows I'm never going to compromise that. And we have a good working relationship. So with Matchroom, you develop that. And it's like you with it's weird. More so with Matchroom, you start working with these guys from day one. Like we have guys in the U S like Ray Ford is fighting for his first title in March. Yeah. I shot his pro debut mm. and I've shot almost mm. every one of his fights. Um, so it's it's kind of interesting. You you watch these it's it's a lot more fun. Um, because you watch these kids grow up, you know, in, yeah. in front of you. Um Diego Pacheco. Like, I mean, that kid's just on a on a upward climb. And gosh, gosh, he was I didn't shoot his pro debut because it was in Mexico, but I think he was like 17 years old when we signed, like when Matron signed him. So like, you know, now he's like on the cusp of potentially going on to fight for a world title. And yeah. uh so it's it's fun, but as far as my all times, it would be daddy. It would be Cotto. Um, I'm pretty fond of Canelo, um, triple G, you know, those are guys that I worked with a lot. Um, Roy Jones. Um, you know, I got to shoot Roy near the end of his career. And then he was with HBO and, you know, I still, whenever I see him, um, I saw him a couple months ago. He was ringside, and uh, Molina came by. And she's like, "Hey, someone, someone's yelling furiously to you." And I turn, and it's Roy. <laughs> and, like he calls me the baby, um, <laughs> because we were driving in Vegas one day, and there was like six seats in this Escalade going over to Canelo's. Oh yeah, right told me. Me this. And there was no everybody got in, and there was no seat for me, so I sat down in the middle of the thing. And here's Roy doing this like Instagram live. He's like, yeah, hey, we're heading over to see Canelo. We're gonna do his fighter interviews, blah blah blah. And we got one, two, three, four, five. We got six people in the car. And then he turns it and he puts the camera on me. He's like, and we got a baby in the middle without a car seat. <laughs> and from that day on, he doesn't call me Ed anymore. He just calls me the baby. Oh, and um, oh, he does it all the time and it's hysterical. And I so I have I have a pretty good fondness for shooting his fights and um after that. So yeah, those would probably be my, my top ones, I would think. Hey. Okay. Pretty none, of them, none,
1: of, none of them fed you a beat though well oh, well, only, you know only oh my one God. Up, even,
2: like seriously now i feel stupid i mean i forgot bernard like i actually saw bernard uh last week hmm. um okay i did i did my first golden boy show in forever john Ryder was fighting Mungia, right um who was another one of our favorites when we were at hbo when he was coming up yeah. we were like oh, he's fighting this guy's gonna be great um so bernard was there and he's like he looked at me and he's like ed man, it's been a while. And I'm like, yeah, we'll catch up. And he's like, we have to. And I ended up talking to him for a little while the next day. But uh, yeah, I know he didn't feed me beats. No one else has. (laughs) And I worked with him forever. I mean, I probably shot 17 or 18 of his fights. Wow. Um, Mm. Yeah. So he's another one. But him, you got to watch because, I mean, he'll just.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yep. (laughs) Yeah. The story story behind that, I don't think we've ever mentioned it on, on the podcast, is that Ed and I were doing his in camp with him for his final fight and we were in his hotel room, and because he's Bernard freaking Hopkins, he, like, has his own, he has the hotel. Yeah, the same hotel room. It's, like, yeah. his hotel room is, like, our houses. And, and he had, this, exactly, and he had, like, these three large roasted beet, and it's just Ed and I sitting at this long table with Bernard, and Ed comments that I hate beak. I'm sure I've mentioned it at some point. Bernard's not okay with this. He, Ed says he loves it, so Ed gets an entire beat on a play. He's sitting at the end of this long dining table with a knife and fork eating his own beat. It's
2: like, right? it's like every movie you've ever seen with a 40-foot-long dining yeah. table. One person there and and, person. I, and
1: I'm sitting next to Bernard, and Bernard is literally force-feeding me beat to make
0: me like beat. <laughs> it's like, here comes the
1: airplane! Exactly <laughs> what like, and he's like, come on! Yeah.
0: I actually rather like beats, but, I, you know, if, if you have to be forcefully beat by Bernard Hopkins. That's that's the safer way to do
1: it. <laughs> that is yeah. the way to do it. Uh, um, one final question I wanted to ask. Uh, so I was thinking of you the other day, and Kenny Bayless announced his retirement, because I hope I'm not telling tales out of, out of school here. But there are certain little <laughs> secrets that you would tell me about being on the ring apron. One of them is that sometimes doing a fight that Kenny was refereeing could be difficult because Kenny had um, certain posterior strengths shall we say um <laughs> that would you know his ass would get in the way let's be honest right his ass would get in the way a lot uh, of your shot and I was kind of curious about whether there's any other little kind of secrets that that you wanted to share um like are heavyweights easier to shoot because they throw more slowly the little guy is really tough because they throw really fast like that kind of a stuff And and who are the referees now who you really like or don't like shooting with
0: <laughs> so pa- pause to consider who he might offend, okay? Smart, smart.
2: So, um so undercard fighters are easier to shoot than your main event guys generally, and why? Because the skill level generally goes up as you go up the card. Mm-hmm. So like or for instance, I'll give you M- Miguel Cotto. Miguel Cotto was like in the, in the beginning of his career was I loved shooting him. You always had great action shots. And then all of a sudden, sudden along the way, uh, it got harder to photograph him. And why? Well, it wasn't necessarily, they wasn't an action fighter anymore. You still got shots of him hitting people, but while he was throwing punches, you know, he throw a left hook and the hand was here. Now, uh-huh. instead of the hand being here, um, same with Canelo. Like, after the Mayweather fight, all of a sudden, the left hook wasn't one of these anymore. It was a hand here. So now you're not seeing his face. You get this, like, kind of deal. Um, So, like, as fighters improve in their careers, they become harder to photograph Um, most of the time. Like, Arturo Gatti was easy to photograph any fight. (laughs) Like, it was just, I'm going to put my face out here, and I'm going to throw my hands as much as I can. And I'm going to get you, or you're going to get me. And it was wonderful not for him or his opponent, but for a photographer, you're like, great. Um, referees. I, I'm trying to think of like referees that really get in the way. I There's not a lot of them. Um There's, I, I don't know if there's different instruction with referees now, but a lot of referees, I used to find there was a lot of referees. You always saw in the photos. A lot of referees yeah. kind of stand back now hmm. and, I think I always wondered why like they didn't and they were on top of the action. Like when you get a referee, it's very involved in the action. They're close to the fighters. And I find that if you're, if you're like, I mean, think about it. If you're close to your subject, you can't necessarily see everything that's going on. So your best referees, I think kind of stay back a bit. Um, And now, Watch the action from afar, and if a guy gets hit and he might be shook, they they step in. um So there's not a lot of referees that really. Could... Steve Smoker used to get in my way all the time. Now Steve, <laughs> he was known. Steve was known as a referee that let him fight, mm-hmm. but he'd move around the ring, and his arms would always be flailing out. So I'd always have like he wouldn't be in the frame, but I'd have a hand but like, randomly <laughs> like, in the frame because he just stood like this all the time. um But yeah, most of the referees are 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 pretty good. I mean trying to think of the concept,
0: like Harvey doc's really good. Do you, do you ever get distracted when it's Steve Willis and he's making all his faces reacting the to eyes? the punches? Oh,
2: man, he's, <laughs> he's, fun, man. he's fun. He's so animated, man. He's, he's a pretty good referee. He's he's, um, some referees, I'll be honest with you. Some referees are really aware of where cameras are too. Hmm. And and they, and they'll try and give you a break now and again, but it's, it's tough. I mean, you know, it it's, I, and I try to equate this to like judging a fights, like, people get on judges and and they rightfully should in a lot of cases, but it's tough to judge a fight from ringside. Like, I don't think, I don't think that's the best place to watch a fight. You know, as much as I have a referee in, you know, referees moving around, you can't see the fighters or if the fighters are on the ropes opposite me, how do I know if that guy whose back is on the ropes is doing good inside work? I can't mm-hmm. see anything. Um, and like the UFC has done this. I, I don't know if you've ever been ringside for a UFC fight, but the judges have a um, have like a four inch monitor. Hmm. That has the TV feed. Hmm. So when the fighters go on the ground and they're on the other side of the octagon and the referees stand in their way, they can look at the TV feed. Now, it is just the TV feed. It has no graphics. It has no sound. So they're just watching the camera angle. So now, like, think of it, if the fighter's on the ropes dead across from me and all I could see is the one guy's back. Now, if this guy whose back's on the ropes and he's doing this good inside work in here and you can't see it, you can't score it. But if the other guy's standing here and he's just going like this and it may not be great work, but he's moving his arms and you can see him moving his arms, who are you going to score the fight for? The guy that you can see moving his arms. So, but if you had the TV angle, the camera's coming in from the side and now you can see what both guys are doing. And I think it's a remarkable thing for judges, not that they don't have their fair share of bad decisions in the UFC as well, but it's just an aid that they could use. And, you know, I'm kind of curious why, like, at least for title fights, like why these organizations haven't adopted this. I mean, I'm sure it's an added expense and I'm sure, you know, technology, they got to run wires and all this other stuff, but I mean, it's, it's pretty wild. I see these, you know, you'll see judges get blocked and they immediately look down at the TV monitor and they look back up when they can see. And Mm. You know, because it's, I mean, I don't envy them. It's not, I mean, there's some decisions that are just awful. And, and, you know, the, uh, did you guys watch the Tiafema Lopez fight the other night? I mean, that was just a horrible fight to draw. um, And and God helped the judges there, but regardless of how you had it scored, it was a close fight. And One judge had a 117, 111. Now, that's just not a good scorecard. And the judge who had that is probably one of the best judges in the world. Right. So it happens. And he's a friend of mine and (laughs) a great judge. But that was just a, a weird scorecard. Like, there was no way that fight. But knowing what I know standing ringside, there's ways that you could potentially see fight so far different than the other two judges. And I don't think fans completely understand that. Um, that it could happen it shouldn't happen and they have to find a way to make it so it doesn't happen but once you're sitting against that ring apron it's you
0: can i can see how it could happen if, if you can fix uh the scoring problem in boxing ed that uh that you, you get 10 courage awards for that uh or, or yeah. <laughs> all the BWAA yeah. awards to whoever can solve so long and yeah, yeah
1: that's 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 give there's you everything no,
0: yeah.
2: there's no way you could ever fix that problem No, I mean, (laughs) as much as an infuriation, isn't that part of the beauty of the sport? Like, I mean, it's on both sides of it, whether, you know, it's just there's always you're always going to have that.
0: Right. Um, It certainly adds adds a little drama at the end of the fight because you never know what the ring announcer is going to have to say.
2: Yeah. I mean, you just want I mean, there's a lot of fights that people like to scream robbery now that aren't robberies. They're close fights. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Good close fights. Um, I don't know why fans tend to want to shoot the sport in the foot like that, but they're just good close fights. It's the way it is. Ed, buddy,
1: it's always good to talk to you, and it's even better to be able to talk to you now after everything that you've been through. Really glad that you've come through on the other side, man. And, uh, yeah, it's great to talk to you,
0: and we'll do it again.
2: Yeah, let's do it. Absolutely. Awesome. Thanks, Ed.
0: Thanks, S. All right. Our thanks again to Ed. Uh, All right, Kieran. Crack your knuckles. Loosen up your jaw. It is time to play the fight game. Uh, I will say nothing to set any kinds of expectations whatsoever. I have clues. You'll make guesses. We'll see what happens. That's okay. it. Are you ready? Right. As ever, yes. Okay. First clue: This fight between two undefeated fighters with a combined record at the time of seventy-nine and zero is best remembered for its ending. I guarantee you've seen clips of the ref jumping in to stop it with the losing fighter out on his feet plenty of times.
1: Um... And the losing fighter was legitimately out on his feet, right? It wasn't a controversial stoppage, or is that a clue for later?
0: No, I, I can say he was I, I said he was that the losing fighter was out on his feet, he was out on his feet. It was not a controversial stoppage. Hmm.
1: Nothing is particularly coming to mind. It feels as if this is one of those where I would be irritated at not getting this at clue one.
0: <laughs> you should uh, never be irritated <laughs> to not get it at clue one. It's never easy at clue one, but sure, once you find out what it is, you may look back and say, Oh, I could have gotten that if I thought of it. But shall we move on to clue two or do you want to Yeah, play?
1: let's move on. I should take should take a wild guess, but nothing's coming to mind. So let's move on.
0: Okay uh the boxer who won is in the hall of fame now so are two other fighters who were on this loaded card julio cesar chavez and ricardo lopez
1: interesting so oh
0: right so i was gonna say interesting with chavez on the undercard but you didn't specify that this. Was i a did main not event. i good good perception there that i did not say which of which of those fighters was the main event that they were just all on the card this fight a Julio Cesar Chavez fight and a Ricardo Lopez fight. And that the boxer who won this fight is in the Hall of Fame.
1: Hmm. Oh, it gives me a very rough,
0: <laughs> rough uh, 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 time area. Hmm. Right. I was, I, I. I was, at first, when I wrote that clue, I was thinking, "All right, yeah, that'll give him a pretty good sense of of the of the the era." But Chavez has such a long to... career. Exactly. Lope, yeah, Lopez focuses you a little bit more than Chavez, I suppose.
1: Right. Um... Still not getting anywhere here. I I think this is one of those where uh, listeners are starting
0: to shout at me. <laughs> Uh, some I maybe think. some maybe i'd be surprised if there's not a single listener who 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 is the the to put it together yet i bet i bet some have but the majority probably are with you karen confused and coming up with nothing so right, clue...
1: which is basically my my standard
0: kind of <laughs> right
1: that's your baseline life anyway. right yeah exactly <laughs> i'm
0: feeling pretty comfortable right now okay <laughs> uh clue 3 has a lot more information in it here we go clue 3 the winning fighter was knocked down in the second round, the second knockdown he'd suffered in his career. The previous knockdown was also in the second round of a fight, and he would also get knocked down in the second round of his very next fight, but would get up to win, and he would keep winning until his record reached 40-0. and Eventually, he stopped being undefeated. He retired in 2008 with a record of 42-3, 35 KOs okay so the king of the
1: second round knockdowns was was felix trinidad so did you say the winner
0: got knocked down in the second round correct yes okay so this is a felix trinidad fight i will let um, you know you are correct if felix trinidad is that fighter who made it to the hall of fame and made it to 40 and 0 and all that so, uh did you give me a round
1: in the in the did you say like late like the 11th or something i did i did not
0: you're making that up i did not give a round i'll i'll the i'll re i'll re i'll repeat the first clue because that that had some information that may lead you toward who who this fight was against this fight between two undefeated fighters with a combined record at the time of 79 and oh is best remembered for its ending i guarantee you've seen clips of the ref jumping in to stop it with the losing fighter out on his feet plenty of times So I'm going to say Fernando Vargas. That is incorrect. That is not the right fight. So, uh, we must move on to clue four. Okay. Here we go. Damn. I thought I had it there. (laughs) Yeah, you thought you did, but, uh, no, you, you got that 11th (laughs) round or that 11th or 12th round in your mind for whatever reason. And, uh, but, uh. I will tell you, it is earlier than the Fernando Vargas knockout, which was in was a KO-12, so it has to be earlier. Um, okay. Right, so here right. we go. Uh, fourth clue. This fight is part of the storied Mexico versus Puerto Rico rivalry, and the losing Mexican fighter would rebound to win an alphabet title three years later, defeating a man who's been on our podcast many times. Crazy as it sounds, this Mexican fighter just retired last July, a week before turning 52, Having scored a win that improved his record to 108, 17, and 3 with 83 KOs.
1: It's your boy, Campus. Yes, it is. You've got it. <laughs> and so the 79 and 0 was very heavily tilted in one direction
0: right he was like he was 56 and 0 and tito was 23 and 0 i believe coming into this fight. yes um and of course the man the man the man he defeated who's been on our podcast many times of course was el diamante raul marquez um but but you now that now that you know the fight you can picture the ending right and having seen that clip on a million highlight reels yeah. Yes,
1: but I'm struggling to remember who Chavez was fighting on that card.
0: Uh, so, so Chavez was the main event in the Meldrick Taylor rematch. Oh. So this was 1994. Um, and uh, I, I almost put a little more description into the opening clue, but thought it might have said too much. The jumping in, ref jumping in to stop it with the losing fighters head popping back or something something to that effect mm, i thought mm. about giving it a little more of that cuz that's what everyone like the i feel like i've heard the comparing yuri boy campus's head to a pez dispenser as he took that <laughs> knockout right, right. kind of was it was that sort of thing uh but yeah the answer is trinidad ko4 yuri boy campus at the mgm grand in las vegas on september 17th 1994 and would you like to hear clue 5 <laughs> yeah in this welterweight title fight, the challenger came in thinking he was the big man on campus. But the defending uh. title holder, T, totally showed him who his Trinidaddy was. <laughs> wow. Yeah, Yeah, I figured we weren't going to get all the way to clue five, so I... But I had some god we got closer than i thought i was a little, <laughs> yeah. a little i
1: was a little anxious for a moment there i really thought i'd nailed it with fernando vargas right but once i realized it was tito i'm like all right here we go i got two three we're good but and you
0: yeah. know now that i think of it i don't think vargas was stopped on his feet i think that one was waved off with him on his hands and knees after the, the oh, uh, been, after yeah. the, the second knockdown of the 12th round so
1: yeah
0: yeah uh yes
1: Bloody hell, your boy Campus just retired. Good Lord.
0: Yeah, I that part surprised me. I'm sure that we, I'm sure that I knew that last year. I saw his name and fr- I forgot all about it when I was looking at his box rec. Oh my God, he was fighting last year. But it says, it says in box rec, Campus retired after the fight. Oh, oh, wow. I hope so. For, for now. Yeah. Right. <laughs> right. All right. um, Transitioning from a past fight to some upcoming fights. Um, There's nothing major this coming week because Fury Usyk got postponed, but there are three televised cards of note. We have another Thursday night show on DAZN from Commerce, California. Jojo Diaz takes on Jesus Perez in a 10 round junior welterweight bout. Then two Friday cards, as everyone was scheduling to avoid competing with Fury Usyk on Saturday, I guess, on ESPN from the small room at MSG. Oshaki Foster defends his 130-pound belt against Abraham Nova with an undercard featuring highly touted featherweight prospect Bruce Shushu Carrington. And on zone from Oaxaca, Mexico, a rematch for a junior flyweight belt, Sivanathi Nonshinga gets another shot at Adrian Curiel after losing his title by shocking second-round KO in November with Mauricio Lara in the co-main. Kieran, what interests you here, if anything? And Will you be placing any wagers, seeing as you need to make at least two more bets in February?
1: Yeah, there are two fights that interest me just as fights, and for ones to uh, meet my quota nice and early here, if not as early as you did. Um, Foster versus Nova and Nonchinga against Curiel. And in terms of bets, I'm going to go with the underdog in both here. Um, Look, Curiel's KO of Noncinga last year was spectacular and emphatic. And completely unexpected it did come early in the fight It was in the second round it can be considered one of those things that can happen um until then Nunchingo had been the one to show real promise in his career he, he was the real up-and-comer the seeming blue chip guy curiel was coming in with with four losses i kind of think that Nunchingo will reverse the result of the first fight in this rematch now the odds for him to do so aren't fantastic. I, I I think they're well placed. He's he's a dog, but he's he seems to be everywhere a, a plus one ten dog, which yeah. isn't a lot. But given that I see him as the favorite anyway, what the hell? I'll put ten on that. Okay. Um, and I'll also put ten, also straight up on Abraham Nova at plus six fifty. Against Oshaki. Look, I do. this is different because I do consider him the underdog here. Against a continually improving Oshaki faster. But Nova's got real skills and talent of his own. We've covered him before. Um, he's a worthy challenger. I think those odds are pretty good for what I think is, yeah, Foster's the favorite. But not an overwhelming one in my mind. So, yeah, those are the two fights that interest me. Both for playing the money punch and because I'm, I'm kind of curious to see how they turn out.
0: Yeah, you know, I, I the same two fights interest me. I, I like both of those Friday main events. Um, Oshaki versus Nova is a good fight. Uh, I'm I'm an Oshaki fan, but Nova's no pushover. He was a hot prospect once, just has one defeat. I could absolutely see him winning, and I had a similar thought of of wanting to bet him at plus six fifty. It's just way too long a price, but. I keep trying these longer odds bets and they keep mm. losing and I don't really expect him to win. Like you said, it's just the price that's too good, but I'm going to resist that urge, but, but I can't okay. resist the urge to bet on Curiel nonshinga, but I'm on the opposite side from you. I, I don't ah. think Curiel winning their first fight was a fluke. He's one of these Mexican fighters who, who lost a few times when he was 19, 20, 21 years old but has improved since then, is undefeated in his last nine, and has an aggressive pressuring style with some skill, mind you, uh, that that I thought was really making Nonshinga uncomfortable. Curiel was already doing well. It wasn't just the one right hand that knocked right. him out. He'd been having success before then. So I like Curiel as, as a short favorite. The shortest I saw him was FanDuel, had a minus 132. I kind of like that pricing. I think there's a tiny bit of value there. So, I'm going to do my first non-underdog bet and risk 26 bucks to win 20 on Curiel to win. And then I was expecting Curiel by KO to be priced as more likely than Curiel by decision. Um, but it turns out Curiel to win by KO again against a guy he already knocked out once and brutally, like knocked out. That's mm. plus 410 at FanDuel. Oof. Um, yeah. I know Curiel has a low KO rate, just five KOs and 24 wins. And I guess that's why the price is what it is. But plus 410 to knock out a guy he flattened three months ago, who knows whether Nonshinga is fully physically or mentally recovered from that. I can't resist. So I'm going with 10 to win 41 on Curiel by KO
1: all right okay that'll be good we'll see some movement one way or the other
0: we certainly will yes it'll be a draw we'll both lose all of our bets
1: of course exactly (laughs) all right uh let's turn to this week's news nothing major here no news main event let's just put it all together in one batch all the indications are that devin haney versus ryan garcia is on for april 20th in las vegas on pay-per-view there hasn't been an official announcement yet There seems like there's going to be one very soon uh dan rafael of espn reports that superior matias is in talks to defend his 140 pound belt in his native puerto rico this summer against liam paro as part of a potential deal with matchroom boxing dan also reports the top rank is close to finalizing a may 18th fight between emmanuel Navarrete and dennis Uh on the march 29th oscar valdez liam wilson card senicia estrada will take on your Valle. To determine the first undisputed women's strawweight champ, the promotional company in Saudi Arabia has unveiled a special, quote unquote, undisputed belt for the Fury Usic winner. They're they're starting to figure out how it all works, aren't they? And I'm (laughs) sure that excites you greatly. And uh, lastly, about a week after his loss to Jaime Munguia, John Ryder has announced his retirement at age 35 with a record of 32 and 7 with 18 KOs Eric your
0: thoughts on any of these items I'll start with Ryder and uh, I say this about most retirements um you know at least the real ones not the Teofimos and the Shakurs I hope it sticks um from my outside perspective he seems like someone who may still have a bit of fight in him you know just two fights ago he was going the distance with Canelo he's certainly aging and fading but but not washed he still has some earning power And it can be hard to walk away if if you haven't been physically forced into retirement. So I hope it sticks. Would be good for him, certainly, if he doesn't take any more punches. But I don't know. We'll see. I mean, Uri Boy Campus just fought last year. So uh, hashtag boxing. But but if he is indeed retired, I think his legacy. um, Remember, we did a top five countdown once of fighters who maximized their potential. Yeah. Yeah. that That is John Ryder. He went as far yeah. as you could possibly go on his God-given ability. So good for him. Fine career if this is indeed the end. uh, Yeah, don't have much to say about this undisputed belt. Um, more belts. Yay, just what boxing needs. <laughs> uh, at, at least they're not charging a sanctioning fee, one presumes. Um, Haney Garcia is obviously the biggest news of the week. Um, and I don't mind it being on pay-per-view as they're talking about. Uh, Devin Haney is... Not really a pay-per-view level draw on his own, but there are two fights he could make that belong on pay-per-view. This one and Tank. Um, like It's a shame he fought Progray on pay-per-view and not enough people saw that performance of his. But this, this should sell okay. Um, I saw the clip of them jawing with each other in Vegas and yeah. then shoving each other. It, it didn't move me one bit. I don't know. Uh, the fight itself, though, is good. There, there's a clear favorite in Haney, but Garcia has a shot. I see them as... Two fighters with similar ceilings. You know, they're both very talented mm. and athletic, but Haney has the much higher floor, the, the the stronger base of fundamentals. He should win, but but Garcia's live. And if Garcia loses competitively, I don't think it hurts his drawing power one bit. And and I'm glad it's happening because it provides everyone an opportunity to use the term four princes and properly credit you, Kieran. Uh, there you the, go. <laughs> the other fights on tap, uh, any Subriel Matias fight is a must-see. Any Emmanuel Navarrete fight is a must see. And Estrada Valle, once again, we see the top female fighters making the biggest fights they can without hesitation. Women's boxing has come a long way from the days of Christy Martin and Lucia Riker not fighting each other and Layla Ali and yeah. Ann Wolf not fighting each other. I like it much better this way. Right. I agree. I have nothing to add to that. I well expressed. I'm... Okay. I'm fine.
1: I'm, I'm, I'm in total con, concord, accord with you there. Um, all right. yeah,
0: we always are in total accord
1: or concord, well, uh, either exactly. way. We don't, we, or, yeah, or concord, yeah. I was hoping you hadn't noticed that. I was,
0: uh, oh, I noticed, buddy. I noticed. Oh, it.
1: yeah. <laughs> Alright, let's, let's wrap this thing up, shall we? And it's spoiler alert time, because mm. uh, Friday saw episode 5 of True Detective Night Country drop early on Max, and, and this episode... While the story didn't exactly retreat from the whole supernatural elements uh, of the last couple of episodes, Evangeline Navarro, played by pro-boxer Kaylee Reese, continues to have visions and at one point found herself walking out into the sea ice like her sister without even realizing it. It also took a very sharp turn back into the real world with the further unveiling of some secrets and a really shocking denouement. Um, We still don't know the details but it is now clear that the alleged murder suicide case that drove a wedge between Danvers and Navarro was nothing of the sort. Uh, We found out that Hank Pryor is on the take from the mine owners in the hope of being promoted and said mine owners seem to be even more involved in the Annie Kay murder than we thought. Also, John Hawks can sing, which I never knew. That was an interesting (laughs) little, uh, little development, Uh, but the most tragic figure on episode five was poor, sweet Pete Pryor. Um, one of the few examples of unadulterated gentleness and decency in the show, whose world just completely freaking implodes. His wife kicks him out, and I think she's being a little unfair. Um, He finds that his boss is at best an accessory to murder. And then he finds out that his dad has been breaking into his laptop to find info to pass on to the mine and to Danvers' boss. And it all comes to a truly horrifying conclusion. There is a lot in episode five eric uh, what did you think and with just one episode remaining where do you think this is
0: going kieran those aren't the right questions ask the right questions <laughs> actually actually karen you need to know when it's time to stop asking questions <laughs> um Indeed. this this is a tough episode to judge until i've seen the finale and how well everything yeah. has paid off on its own this episode was fine um i'd still say my estimation of the show was highest in the first two episodes um mm-hmm. but but i i really thought i thought the final few minutes were excellent with with the showdown with guns with hank and pete and pete doing what he had to do and then the the cleanup plan um that was that was high quality serialized tv action drama you know a major character getting killed off in, in shocking fashion um as I've said, when the show leans into the supernatural, I don't like it as much. When it goes human, it's excellent. And and that was a very human scene. Uh mm-hmm. a son killing his dad who had just killed a junkie and was potentially gonna kill Danvers. Um Yeah, so I, I I loved that. I did not quite see it coming. Um so and and I'm just I'm glad we seem to be pointing toward an ending that won't have too much in the way of supernatural explanations that it's actually <laughs> people murdering people with, with a little heroin and some ghostly visions mixing in, um, you know, <laughs> at, at right. least in, at least in terms of Annie Kotak's murder, I guess maybe there will still be a mostly supernatural explanation for the Salal scientists. I, I hope not. I'm not sure exactly where, how, what they're going to, how they're going to paint that one ultimately, but um yeah, it was it, it was good, but a, a tough episode to to judge. And, and I guess the the one scene there was one scene that I just was uh, it took me a while to sort of figure out what was going on. The whole right-handed, left-handed oh, photos, right handed, left right. handed flopped photos. It was just tough to keep up with. I figured it yep. out well enough, I think, in the end. But it was confusing as it was being laid out. And, you know, and uh, of course, you know, the scene started. We're thinking about Hank getting into Pete's computer and leaking to someone that Danvers and or. Navarro killed Wheeler and so it was just like I'm trying to process that and then I'm trying to figure out all you know what Pete had figured out there with the left-handed right-handed flop photo and all Not not a major complaint but I found that just uh, a, a little tough to track um and 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 then my only other thing is just uh falling through ice is uh one of my great fears in life just seems like an absolutely awful way to die drowning and freezing but at least now I know if the ice starts to crack, lie down and spread out your body yeah. weight. Good, good, good tip to know just in case. <laughs> there you go. Well, you
1: know, hopefully where you are, it's not something that's you're likely to encounter right. too often. But, right. you know, but you never know.
0: Right. <laughs> I did yeah, actually I, I, fall through the ice once as, as a kid. But in a, this, uh, I was like seven, but it was in uh, about two feet of of. Of frozen uh, creek water so uh, didn't, I didn't I still remember like it being horrible and me like screaming out for my mom and oh, all geez, that yeah. but, um, but I was not under I was only underwater from like the waist down and quickly climbed out so uh, right. yeah so never again hopefully <laughs> yeah I hope they don't my
1: hope is that they don't explain away all the supernatural but I hope that it's left kind of sitting there as this element because you know one of the things i liked about it is, as we talked about early on is that particularly with a lot of like inuit you know mythology is that you know the the supernatural world and and the the tangible world if you will are, are kind of on a spectrum and, and and i hope that they don't just completely dismiss it. i think this whole element they keep talking about the water being poisoned by the mine and things like that and i wonder how much of that and the the, the toxins are that that are clearly being put in into the water and and indeed maybe even this microbe that the scientists are looking for whether how much that plays into the visions that some people are having and and on all of that and i i wonder if it will all come back to being the mind but i hope that they don't completely abandon that other element because i i think it's 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 been good for sort of placing it in that in that context of the Arctic, but I think that that's what's going to end up happening. That we're going to find out that basically it all comes down to that nasty mine owner and the mine, right. and and that that fundamentally is is going to be. I mean, we, it's very clear from what Hank said right before the end that basically they killed Annie Kay, Right, uh, as we kind of suspected, and that, that there was some other cover up. But I wonder if there was there's a there's a story hiding there as to why they needed to kill Annie Kay. And it presumably had something to do with her discovering the caves. What's going on down there, I think is going to be ultimately the really big question that we're going to have to get answered.
0: Yeah. And you know, in, in now that we've seen episode five, I guess it was in episode four that, um, Danvers stepdaughter spray painted the word murderer on the front of the ice rink. Um and so that I guess they were doing some foreshadowing there that uh, yeah that they were they were actually identifying for us who who ultimately is 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 the big bad of of the show without uh, without us realizing it at the time necessarily yeah indeed but it's 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 a typical like true detective that it starts
1: out with a bang kind of wanders around in circles Mm -hmm. for a couple of episodes and then it suddenly realizes it has an episode and a half to tidy everything up and 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 we're off to the races it kind of seems to be uh part of the franchise at this point and so um yeah
0: there's gonna be plenty happening
1: and if it turns out the one-eyed polar bear did it i'm gonna (laughs) be
0: yeah i i guess you can't totally rule anything out i I, (laughs) i i have heard that the finale is extra length like an hour ah, 15 effect. to an hour 30 somewhere in that range or whatever. So it'll be a little bit of a longer episode to wrap it up, but um, yeah, we'll, we'll see if they, you know, the only season of true detective that I made it all the way through. They, in my opinion, very much did not uh, stick the landing. So yeah. I'm curious to see if they'll do better with this, but either, either way, I'm, I'm going to miss John Hawks in the final episode. Uh, yes. He's, uh, he, he brought a lot to the show and just, just a great head of hair for a man his age. I I, ha- I had to look him up. He's he's 64. And yeah, uh, yeah I, now I can't be certain the hair is all natural and all his. You know, it's Hollywood, of course. But I think it is his based on seeing photos f- of him over the years and heck of a head of hair. I'm, he's got that. By form. the way,
1: I, I just read uh, uh, it posted after, uh, you know, episode five had been up on the streamer, but there was a q and I think it was on GQ mm-hmm. with him. He's an even cooler guy than I realized. Like he's not on. Not only is he not on social media, good, he barely has a computer. He only oh, just, wow. <laughs> only just got emailed during COVID mm. as a way of staying in touch with people. And and it was very interesting how he was talking about how much like rewriting and redoing and and how much of like a almost like a democracy it is with the showrunner and, and the actors there. That you know mm. she she heard him. So they were filming in Iceland. Right. And he likes to, eat. apparently, I didn't know that music is an important part of, of his life. And right. he was playing some gigs in Iceland while they were taking, and, and the showrunner heard that and goes, okay, we've got to have, okay, Hank's got to sing right in this. And, and he kind of resisted it at first and then went along with it. And and then apparently, like, he and Jodie Foster and Kaylee Reese kind of worked out that that pivotal scene together because they didn't think it quite worked and all of that kind of stuff. But I did find myself wondering... If it hadn't been Kaylee Reese playing Navarro, would Navarro be throwing as many punches as she has mm. been doing in, in the show? And it's just like, eh, let's take advantage of it. This right. there's somebody who can credibly get into fist fights. Right. So uh but yeah, so I was wondering about that. But yeah, I I do still find myself uh anticipate I enjoyed episode five, and I do find myself anticipating um, what's going to happen in episode six. And the only problem with having episode five early is that we have to wait nine days for episode
0: six. We do, but you know, it does allow us to get a, a podcast up on, on a Saturday instead of, uh, you know, waiting for after the superb owl. <laughs> there you go. All right. Uh, that will do it for this episode of the ICDP. Many thanks to
1: Ed Mulholland for joining us. Um, we will have a special president's day related from the vault episode next week. And We'll be back again on President's Day, Monday the 19th, or thereabouts, with, among other things, a recap of the final episode of True Detective, and maybe we'll talk some boxing too. I don't know. Maybe. We'll see. Uh, Maybe. So that will do it for this week. Perhaps someday we will be elevated. But until then, we are merely the interim champion boxing podcast.